me to Judges chapter 19. And uh, as we dive in this morning, we're going to wrap up the book of Judges. So we're going to go 19, 20, 21, finish it off today, okay? Right on. So as you get ready there, let's pray. Lord, we just come before you this morning, Lord. I, I have to say that on some levels, God, I just am nervous even about handling this passage of Scripture because it's such a crazy story about human beings. But Lord, I thank you that your gospel is a crazy story about Jesus coming to save human beings, like the kind of human beings we're about to read about. He came to save not just them, but but me and every person listening and watching this morning, Lord. And God, as we come to your word this morning, we, we just want to take the proper attitude, heart position. God, I'm not the authority of, over your word, even though I'm teaching this morning. We're not the critics of scripture. The scripture is the authority over us. It's the critic of our hearts and our human nature. And it declares to us our depravity, our sin. And it tells us about a Savior in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, Lord, as we come, I pray that it would be with a right heart attitude to your word, Lord. We humble ourselves before you. Praying, God, that the Holy Spirit would unfold the pages of Scripture for our hearts to understand today. That Jesus would be glorified and lifted up. And so, Lord, we give you this time. Speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to wrap up the book of Judges here. We've, we've seen this as we've been going throughout the book of Judges, that, that the book of Judges gives us a look at the 12 tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, as they have come and settled into the promised land and made their homes there, driven out uh, their, the inhabitants of the land. There's, the, the inhabitants of the land have remained strongholds in certain areas and we've watched this as we've gone right from Judges chapter 1 now through today to the end of chapter 21. We've watched the people of Israel go through this constant cycle as they've entered the land. One where they uh, rebel against the Lord and they, they participate in the worship of other gods. They participate in the cultural practices of other people's foreign nations. And so God has sent oppression against them in the in the forms of other nations. And then as they're oppressed and they feel this heavy hand of these people, they've cried out to the Lord in repentance and God has raised up for them judges that have come as saviors, that have come as deliverers and, and brought the judicial sentence of Almighty God against the enemies of God and have set them free from oppressive hands. And so as we've been going through the book of Judges, what we've seen is this, is that every time the people of God enter into this cycle, it gets a little deeper and a little worse and a little deeper and a little worse. And as a judge comes, he's a little more flawed in his character, got a little more personal problems happening in his life. And we see this, that this, this nation has been on this downward spiral. And now as we come to the end of the book of Judges, I want to remind you of this. I told you this last week, but I want to remind you of this. The story of the judges is now over. And in the last five chapters of this book, what we're presented with is two stories. So last week we looked at the first story in, in chapter 17 and 18. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the second story, 19 through 21. And these stories do this for us. They get us down onto the ground level so that we can see what was happening amongst God's people because Israel had no 
king at that point in time. Each man was living how he wanted to live, doing what he pleased. And so these, these two stories just get us down onto the ground. And it's interesting, you know, if you were here with us last week and you thought the story of Micah and Jonathan and the tribe of Dan was a pretty crazy picture of how Israel was rebelling against the Lord. Well, I got to just tell you, that was nothing compared to what we're about to read. <laughs> I mean, this is one crazy story. So ch just check this out with me. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says this. In those days when there was no king in Israel. Now, before I read any further this morning, I'm not going to have time to read all the text because we're covering three chapters. So we're going to land down throughout it and just get a picture of what going, what's going on. But I'm going to say this. You want to underline that verse right there, that first part of Judges chapter 19, verse 1, because those words tell us that what we are about to read, it's setting the stage for what we're about to read, because what we're about to read was, was right in the eyes of Israel. But you need to know this, what we're about to read, and, and we have to get this clear right from the hop, this is evil in the sight of the Lord. Everything that we're about to read, this is a brutal story. These are not the actions of people who are following and living for the Lord, but these are the actions, what we're about to read, of people who are doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, last week we looked at, remember, two stories. We looked at the first one last week, and we read about a Levite. He was Moses' grandson. His name was Jonathan. And Jonathan established a rival priesthood in the city of Dan and, and created all these spiritual problems in the nation. Now, this story is going to revolve around another Levite. A Levite is going to be at the center of this story again. Just like Jonathan was at the center of the story last week, there's another Levite here. Now, a Levite was a man who was supposed to be serving God. He was spending time at the tabernacle of the Lord, serving for a portion of the calendar year there. And then when he wasn't there, he was to be at home amongst his own people, dispersed, teaching and preaching the word of God, explaining the word of God. And last week, we saw with Jonathan a story of spiritual decay amongst the people of Israel. Today, what we're going to see is this, is a story of their moral decay. See, this is how it always goes amongst the nation, amongst the culture, amongst the people. They, de they decay spiritually, and then the result is there will be a moral slide in amongst that culture, in amongst that nation. And this is what we're going to read today. And, and listen, I got to warn you, <laughs> I believe that this is probably the hardest story in all of the Old Testament, maybe all of the Bible to tell. It would be just, you know, I got to say, boy, it would be nice to skip this one. Wouldn't that be nice if we could just skip it? Because this is not comfortable. It's not comfortable to preach. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to be comfortable to listen to this story. This, this isn't, you're not going to mark this down. I'm going to warn you. You are not going to mark this down as your favorite Bible story if you're not familiar with it. Okay, so let's read. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says this. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning, in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys." 
And she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and they drank and they spent the night there. Now, all right, maybe just surface level, we think, wow, what a nice little story that we have going on here. But let's, let's just stop and think about this for a moment. This is a Levite, a man who teaches the word of God. He's taken unto himself a concubine. Now, this is, this is a man who's supposed to be living his life in service to God, just like you're called to. If you, if you live and love Jesus, if you're living for Jesus, you're called to live as his servant, to serve him. But this man, we find out, has adopted the pagan practices of the culture and the nations around him, and he has taken unto himself a concubine. Now, what's a concubine? Well, that's essentially like having a mistress, okay? I mean, it was legal in everything, but basically, she's like a a second-class wife. She's guaranteed food. She's guaranteed shelter. And in exchange, you know, sex. That's how this works. She's a mistress. Now, if we just know the story of the Bible and God's creation and his design, God has made man and woman for a relationship of monogamy, one man, one woman in marriage with one another. But in many places in the scripture, we see characters that we love. Like how about Abraham, Jacob, David, even Solomon, who takes the cake practicing, you know, taking other wives, taking concubines into their house, this this polygamous practice. And every time in scripture, look at this is important. The scripture never paints this in a good light. Every time this happens, this man brings problem into his house, into his family, into his life, into that woman's life. This is not God's design. This is an action against God's design. And so what we read is this. I mean, we're going to move. This this story probably deserves a good hour and a half, two hours this morning, but I got to move quick, okay? So we're going to land down and touch down throughout it, okay? So what we read is this, is that the concubine, she's unfaithful. She cheats on him. She has an adulterous relationship with another man, unfaithful. And so the implication is, is he sends her packing. He gives her the boot. So what does she do? She returns to her father's home. She goes back to to her dad. And after a few months, the Levite starts, you know, having some regrets and missing having his mistress around. So he decides he's going to go down to Bethlehem. He's going to put things back in order and patch things up, see if he can do that. And so he goes there. He meets the father-in-law, and the father-in-law is happy to see him. They they hit off this friendship and he invites him in, and they, they begin this like three days of merrymaking. Like the idea is like they're getting drunk for three days here. They're eating, it's gluttonous, they're over drinking. And, and it extends on, if we read on, it extends to a fourth day, to a fifth day. And so look at this story, just as we just start the groundwork here, this is moral chaos. And if these were pagan, worldly people who didn't serve the Lord, then fine. You know, this behavior is to be expected. But look at this is the people of God. This is the children of Israel. This is a Levite. These are people called to be holy. These are people called to be a light to the Gentiles. 
These are people that are to be living for the Lord and looking different from the nation and the culture around them. But what's happened? We're going to see this over and over again. They have become like the nations around them. They're not holy. They've become like the nations around them. And so finally, as this merrymaking's going on, the drinking party, on day five, the Levite packs up late in the day, and he takes his concubine and his servants and his donkeys, and they head off to return home. And it's late in the day, and they travel from Bethlehem to Jabus, or the city of Jerusalem. It's not yet the city of Jerusalem, because the Israelites haven't conquered it yet. It's actually David who's eventually going to conquer that city. And it's late in the evening, or it's dusk time, and so the servants say to the master, the Levite, we should stop and spend the night here. He says, no, 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 we're not, we're not staying amongst these people because this is a, a Canaanite city. We're going to stay, we're going to journey on, we're going to stay amongst our own people. We're going to find an Israelite city. So they press on into the tribal land of Benjamin, and they come to the city of Gibeah, and they go to the town square. Because what happens in that culture is this, is that the children of Israel, according to the law, were obligated to take guests into their home, the, the sojourner into their home and provide for them. So they go to the city square looking for somewhere to stay amongst the city of Gibeah and the Benjamites, and no one takes them into their home. And finally, an old man comes into town and he takes them to his home. He says this to them. He says, it's not safe that you stay in this city square. And so he takes them to their home, and guess what starts? The binge drinking and eating, it starts all over again. It's like, party on, dude. Party on. Now let's read what happens. Chapter 19, verse 22 says this. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now that's a polite way of saying they, they want to have sex with him. Okay, this new man in town, verse 23. And the man, the master of the house went out to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Verse 24, behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Now I read this. Wow. Wow. You know, it's amazing to me that the Bible never whitewashes the character of human beings. The Bible never whitewashes what humanity is capable of or will do without God. And, and I have to say to you, like, I just have to qualify this and say, look, it, I don't want to make sense of what this story is telling us because there is no way to explain away what I just read to you. This is awful. It's disgusting. It's depraved. This is evil. What we're reading here is evil. 
This is sexual and and moral depravity from the men of that town that, that they are acting in violation to God's law, to God's design, to God's purposes. What we read is sin. It's sin. And it's incomprehensible to me that this man would like offer up his virgin daughter, that the Levite would send out his concubine. I cannot fathom it. Can you? I know you can't. It's crazy. It's disgusting. You know, I think this, I'm like, these men should have protected those women. Like, isn't that what men are supposed to do? Like, protect women to be guardians of their wives and their daughters? But what do we find out here? This, this woman is sent out to these men. She's raped all night long, abused all night long. It's disturbing. And what we see is like even amongst the people of God at this point in time, as they've got no king, they also have no value on the lives of women. No, they place no value on the creation of woman and her design and, and God's purposes. Total indifference to women. You know, Jesus... Jesus always elevates the status of women. Every time you see that in scripture, Jesus changes a culture, how a culture treats women. Like women are not treated better anywhere than in a Christian culture. And where you watch a culture turn away from serving the living God, there you will see a culture that will objectify women, that will abuse women, that will remove the rights of women. Only Jesus no one like Jesus puts women to their proper place. And these men, this is evil. They get total indifference to the, the sanctity of, of sex. Total indifference to the responsibility of marriage and the laws of God. I mean, this man sacrificed his own concubine to save his skin. In fact, as you read it, what you actually see is this. is that He just went off to bed and you know, slept and got up in the morning and, you know, whatever. And so this is a brutal story. I mean, right from the start, we've got, you know, a mistress, we got adultery, we got homosexuality, we got rape. This is a story of sexually immoral people. And the Bible doesn't, you know, try to cover it up. This is real. And as I read this, I think this, it reminds me of the story of Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah. When God rescued Lot from the city of Sodom and the overtones of that story, you can feel them as you read Judges chapter 19. And that is the exact purpose. Look at the author wants you to catch that. The author wants you to connect the story of Sodom to what is happening here in Gibeah. Because he's saying this, the people of God, Israel, have become like the children of Sodom. It's brutal. You know, sex is of God's design. And no one walks away from the deepest act of physical union between two people unchanged by it. And in a culture where people are just free for all, pursuing their sexual appetites unrestrained, there you will have moral chaos, moral collapse happening. And this is what we're going to see. Further and further problems. This is just, this is, you know, the root of a lot of symptoms in Israel. This is the root of a lot of symptoms that are happening in our own nation right now. You know, the Holy Spirit, when we follow Jesus and Jesus comes and 
sets us free, forgives our sin, and gives us new life, eternal life in Him, and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. The Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit teaches us to say no to unrighteousness. That the Holy Spirit trains us to be self-controlled. The Holy Spirit and God's Word directs us that we're to honor God's design for sexuality, and, and we're to honor the marriage bed. We're to honor the relationship between Men and women, male and female, because that's God's design. And God's commands in with regards to these things are always good. You know, people tend to see them sometimes when they don't know the word of God and they don't know Jesus, they see them as restrictive. But what they don't realize is that God has put such things in place for our protection, for our safety, for our good, so that sex can be enjoyed in the context of marriage. You know, I think about this story right from, the, if, right from the start here. If this Levite had never taken his mistress concubine, then this mess never would have started. These dominoes wouldn't have started to fall, but it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse as we read on here. This is just, but this, I, and I'm going to say this, you know, this history has a purpose. So why would God write these things into the Bible? Why would they even be there in the first place? Well, look at biblical history has a spiritual purpose. We want to come as we read this, and we don't want to be the critic of the Bible. We want to allow the word of God to penetrate our own hearts and discern what's going on in our own hearts and our own minds. Now, let's read on to see what's going on here. It says this in verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning when he opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the, of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's get going. Wow, just totally careless here. Like, like nothing happened. The text says, but there was no answer. Then he put her on his donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces. And he sent her throughout all the territory of Israel, and all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, (coughs) and speak. Isn't this disturbing? It's disturbing. I mean, in spite of everything that's already happened to this woman, there's no respect for her human remains, for you know, no proper burial, no respect for her life whatsoever, for her value, for God's design upon her. The lifeless body of a woman who's raped to death is butchered into pieces. This is disturbing. And it's sent off to all the 12 tribes of Israel communicating, you know, what had happened and saying, we need some sort of response to this evil behavior. Well, you know, I would just say this. You know, societies that like go in this direction of like sexual immorality, unrestrained, that reduce love just to lust, they go down a path of disrespect for human life. You know, like that's happened in our own cultures. It wasn't in our own culture. It wasn't until the sexual revolution and all of that happening in the late '60s that then, you know, Wade v. Road and 
and, and all of these you know, acts of abortion and different things came into place. It's like, because there's disrespect for human life as love just turns into lust. People are objectified. Life has no value. Others just become objects. And before you know it, babies are just fetuses. And if they're an inconvenience, you abort them. You know, seniors, the elderly become a drain on the state. You know, where there is no respect for human life, and people are sexually objectified, there you will watch this happen. You will actually watch uh, the protection of human rights begin to dissolve. And I think that we're seeing that happen right in our own country. And, you know, you think about what we read here, and it's like we're surprised when we encounter evil because I'm... I guess I could just say this. We don't really think that this kind of stuff exists in the hearts of human beings. No, that's just like other people. Well, what the Bible wants us to see is it gives us this story. It wants us to see that this human depravity, these acts of sin, they, the potential for them lie in the heart of every human being. That your heart is depraved. That your heart is sinful. And unless Jesus Christ saves you and you surrender your life to Jesus and he gives you a new heart, there's no end to the potential depravity that you could participate in. You know, as a church, as those who believe in the Bible, we believe in original sin. We believe that Adam and Eve in the garden rebelled against God. They broke his command and they brought sin into humanity and that every man, woman, and child ever born has been born into sin. Except one. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born to save men and women from their sin. To save them from death. And Jesus took upon himself the punishment for our sin. Died on the cross, buried, placed in a tomb, and raised from the dead so that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We believe that as human beings, we're sinful. But Jesus, he forgives our sin. He purifies us and cleanses us from unrighteousness and he saves us. We need Jesus to save us. And so we come to chapter 20. And chapter 20 is the record of how the tribes began to try and deal with this issue. And I'm going to tell you. They are going to attempt human solutions for human problems. Let's read this. Chapter 20, verse 1, it says this. Then all the people came out of Israel, or all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in an assembly of people sorry, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot who drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? So from the 11 other tribes, 400,000 soldiers gathered, men who are carrying swords. And they begin an investigation. What happened to this woman? What happened in the behavior amongst God's chosen people was just so shocking that 11 tribes gather as one man, form this army of 400,000. And when they hear the report of the Levite, the Levite does this. He doesn't disclose any of his own personal responsibility in the story. 
doesn't expose any of his despicable behavior. He gives an edited version of what happens. And so these tri- this tri- the, the army of 400,000 decide they are going to go in battle, in war against the tribe of Benjamin, 11 verses 1. This is the seed of civil war here. And so first, they do this. They contact the tribe of Benjamin and they say, we want you to give up the worthless fellows who committed this crime. But the Benjamites refuse to surrender the offenders and instead, they do this. They assemble their own army. That's a lot of text here, so we're not going to read it all. You can do that on your own. Later. So they assemble their own army. They get 26,000 men who have a sword, and the Benjamites have amongst their 26,000 men 700 elite soldiers. They're all left handed, those 700 men, and they can, they can, they're so skilled with the sling that they can split a hair. And so the showdown is set, it's a civil war. And it's crazy because here you got God's people. They're supposed to war against the inhabitants of the land. And now they've, they've turned on one another. Rather than existing for the purposes of God, they've turned on one another and they're going to have a civil war. And if we were to read all this text, you would see this, that, that up to this point, no one has bothered to inquire of the Lord, to ask the Lord his purpose or his will in the midst of this thing. This passage reminds us you know, that the, the kingdom of God, that God's rule is not, not brought to earth by armies or by programs or by political legislation. Not to say that those, you know, programs, armies, political legislation, not to say that they don't have their place and that Christians shouldn't be involved. But, but the only way hearts are going to be changed is if God's spirit moves upon people's lives. That's the only thing that's going to bring lasting results and change a culture and change a society. But these people, this army of 400,000, they don't consult the Lord. They just prepare for civil war. Now, verse 18 says this, the people of Israel rose, arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Now, it's like this. They finally consult the Lord, but it's just religious formality. I want to point this out. This isn't like direction from God. God, should we have a civil war? Should we do this? How should we bring discipline to this situation? How should we respond to our Benjamite brothers? There's nothing honorable about what they're doing. This is just a religious formality. They've already decided they're going to have a civil war. All they ask the Lord is, who should go first? The Lord says, okay. I will hand you over to your decisions. This is like Romans chapter one, chapter two. I'll hand you over. You're making decisions without me. Feel the consequences of your sin. Judah can go first. And then we read this in verse 19. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and they destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. (laughs) This is crazy. So Benjamin with 26,000 men goes to war against 400,000. 
And they kill 22,000 of those 400,000 men. Now I read that, I go, where is the justice in that? This is insane, Lord. That's not the expected outcome. But God allowed Israel to be defeated by Benjamin. Let's read, let's read on, verse 22. But the people of Israel, the men of Israel, took courage. And again, they formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and they wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went out and destroyed out of Gibeah the second sorry, and Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day, and destroyed eighteen thousand men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. So day two of the battle, and what happens? Israel is defeated again. Not Benjamin. Israel's defeated. 18,000 men. It's just like, how could this be the good guys are losing? The good guys, the righteous ones, are getting destroyed. And now they've lost 40,000 men. They've even been weeping in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord's like, yeah, go. I would say this, though. This was weeping without repentance. This was like, you know that because you've done that in your own heart and life. Where you've gone before the Lord and you've wept, but you've not really dealt with what's at the heart of the issue. They haven't dealt with it. They've yet to deal with it. So they get mopped up again. Verse 26. Then the people of the Lord, of the people of Israel, the whole army, went, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So we read this, and it's like, finally, okay, finally, after being defeated twice, this time they weep, but this time it's accompanied with fasting. It's accompanied with sacrifices. You know, rather than assuming that they should fight their brothers, they, they humbly ask the Lord, and this time the instruction of the Lord is much clearer. They're to go and fight, and in the third battle of the tribes go against Benjamin, and they destroy ben Benjamin. Okay, I'm not going to read all of it for you, but they win the battle against their brothers, and they kill all the men of Benjamin except for 600. Only 600 men are left. Now check out verse uh, 46. It says this. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword. All of the men of valor... But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. So there it is. The army of Benjamin is defeated by the tribes of Israel. And I guess if that's where it ended, you would say this, okay, the Lord has allowed justice to be executed against these men who would not criminally prosecute these rapist murderers. But unfortunately... It gets worse. Can you believe that? You know, can you imagine being in my shoes right now having to say that? It gets worse. This is not where it ends because the tribes of Israel take the retribution even further than just defeating the armies of, of the Benjamites. Instead of, you know, leaving it there, the army turned against all of the towns of the Benjamites 
and they do a genocide on all the towns. This is insane. Look at verse 48. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that were found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. This is nuts, man. Like somewhere this went from disciplining injustice to civil war to genocide against one of the tribes of Israel, brother on brother, tribe on tribe. And the tribe of Benjamin is reduced to 600 men. The women are wiped out. The children are wiped out. The army is wiped out. The cities are burned to the ground. All you have left is 600 men hiding in the hills. Brutal. It's brutal. Now let's check out chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So part of the revenge on Benjamin was this, that they would not, Israel pledged, we will not give any of our daughters in marriage to these 600 survivors. Now it's a, it's a rash vow. Again, this isn't, God didn't instruct them to do this. This is them, you know, compounding the problem. And so now the problem is, how are we going to provide wives for these 600 men? Because a tribe is essentially gone here from amongst our own people. It's going to become extinct. This is not victory. This is, this is terrible. So they've got to come up with a plan to give these, women, these men wives. Now let's read verse 2. It says this, And the people came to Bethel, and they sat there, Till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day, the people rose early and they built there an altar and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all of the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. So now we find out they've made a second vow. The first vow they made was this, we're not giving our daughters in marriage to the Benjamites. And the second vow they said was anybody who doesn't show up before the Lord right now, we're going to kill them. Which again, this is, this is another rationale. This is not from the Lord. This is human beings like uttering stupid things, foolish things. In the midst of the emotion and this rash situation, they're just like saying stuff. God hasn't directed them to do this. So check out verse 6. The people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin and they said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up before the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one came from the camp of Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. And when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. Now, Jabesh Gilead is like Golan Heights, as far as east as you can go in the land of Israel. This wasn't just like, you know, a short little trip. These are people living on the other side of the Jordan River, as far as you could possibly go. It wasn't, you know, just that easy to come and assemble before the Lord. It was a great distance for them to cover. 
and they weren't represented. Now, verse 10. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the sword. Also the women and the little ones. What? Verse 11. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that is lain with a man, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. I go, how is this a solution? You like destroy a whole other town, families, take, take their virgin daughters and wipe out another community in the land of Israel. God hasn't directed this action. This isn't from God. This is human beings making up their own solutions to their own created problems. And all of this is happening because Israel did not have a king. They did not see Yahweh as their king. This is not the act of God's justice. This is people just self-inflicting themselves, making more and more and more problems. And so they take these 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead and they give them to the 600 surviving men of Benjamin. So wives are provided for 400 guys, but now 200 guys don't have a wife. So now they got, a not, they got more problems. So they do this. We're going to read through basically to the end here. Let's pick it up in verse 16. It says this. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for the wives of those who are left since women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out for, from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives for our daughter, from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be the one who gives his wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethlehem to Shechem, from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebona, verse 20, and they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh. This is insanity. And go to the land of Benjamin. Verse 23. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. So here's the solution for 200 more wives. Let's, uh, let's give you permission to abduct young women, kidnap them from families, I mean, this is just insane. That's all I want to say. That's my commentary. This is insane. <laughs> and then the chapter ends with these words that are familiar to us now from the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the close of the book of Judges. And, and, and I, I have to say, you know, it's kind of depressing. You know, this story does not make sense because sin is not rational. Look, you can't make sense of sin. Sin is not rational. 
And the closing verse is the key to this whole story in the book of Judges. Israel has rejected their king. They have rejected God as their king. They have rejected Yahweh. He was the only true king of the people of Israel. But they're going to do this. I mean, this is what the book of Ruth and and 1 and 2 Samuel are all about. They're going to set up a kingship. But it's going to be a human kingship. It's going to be inadequate. And there's going to continue to be failure from human beings. But the whole thing is setting the stage for the one king, the king of kings to come, King Jesus. And everything else, look, i got to tell you this. In your life, everything that you pursue can just be an inadequate substitute for Jesus. Jesus is to be the king of our lives. And I read this story, and I can't help but think, you know, there's a parallel to this story happening among the nations of the world today. You know, this is what happens. Sexual immorality and, and then just the moral culture slides and, the, you know, the government begins to collapse and all of these things. Like, I mean, what happens in the book of Judges? It sets the pattern for what has happened in the world time and time over and over and over again. And I'll tell you, as followers of Jesus, of those who want to live for King Jesus... The exciting thing for us is that this, is that we are looking for the coming of our King and Savior, Jesus. And Jesus is going to come again. And when he comes again, he is going to set up his government. He is going to set up his rule on this earth. It's called a theocracy. The rule of God is going to happen and King Jesus will rule. And when his kingdom comes in his fullness, in its fullness, There will be righteousness on the earth. And Judges ends with leaving us kind of hanging, and that's the whole idea. Like, I got to tell you, that is the whole idea that we would be looking forward to the coming of a better order. Looking forward to the coming of a better rule, a better government that depends not on human beings, but depends on the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who alone changes the hearts of men. And so I want to just leave you with a few application points as we consider this text this morning. Boy, it's a crazy story. The first thing that I just want to ask is this. Why did this happen? Why has this happened? And I want to implore you in your own life, make Jesus King. You know, when we look at the story of Judges, and in particular this story this morning, and we say, why why did these people get into this mess? Look, the answer is simple. There was a lack of a king. There There was a lack in their life of submission to the rule of a master, of one who would rule righteously over them. And for us, to avoid this mess in our own personal lives. Look at it was one domino that fell. A Levite took a mistress. One domino started it all. And so we must make sure that Jesus is king. And if Jesus isn't the king of your life, what will happen is this. God will leave you to the desires of your own decisions and you will make a mess of your life. 
You and I know that about ourselves. And so the solution, make Jesus king. And we say, Jesus, direct me, guide me. I submit to your rule and your authority. The second thing I want to tell you is this. Is, and I'm going to actually encourage you, write these things down in the notes on the, in the bottom of your page or wherever it is, if you've got space in your Bible. The second thing I want to point you to is this, is read yourself into this book. This is one of the things we want to do with Scripture. We want to learn the lessons. We want to learn the lessons that people failed to learn. We, we, we need to know, or I would, sorry, 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 I would say this, we don't need to know or experience these things in our own personal lives. Look at, Jesus came to set us free from sin and its power. And so put yourself into the shoes of those in this story and ask yourselves, why did they fail in their own lives to drive out evil? And I would point us to one thing in this. I think that they took their moral direction from the, nation, from the culture around them. They took their, their sexual ethics from the culture and the people's around them. Look at church. We do not take our moral direction from the world. We take it from the word of God. We allow the word of God to shape our values, to shape our beliefs, to shape our morality. And there is always a danger for the people of God that we become like those around us. And, and, you can look, I mean, you, you read this story and what you see is failure after failure after failure. And look at when that's happening in a life, maybe that's been happening in your life. If it is, I want to tell you that can be turned around. If you'll turn in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ, because perpetual failure in life points to the fact that you're not living for King Jesus. You're making your own decisions and pursuing your own desires and your own morality in Romans chapter one and two. The Lord will allow you to do that. But you will experience the consequences of those decisions of living apart from the Lord. So read yourself into the book. The third thing I want to say to you is this. Look at Scripture. I love this about the Bible. Scripture is real and paints real pictures of humanity. This is a real picture of humanity without God. And we believe we believe human beings, the Bible tells us, are born in a sin. There's a need for a Savior to set us free from sin and its authority and its power. And, and so this is a real picture of humanity. And so we need to be aware in our own hearts and lives. Is there spiritual deterioration happening? Am I allowing stuff to go on in my heart and life that I never would have pre, in previous years of walking for Jesus? Look at this is a real picture of where humanity goes without God. What happens? And then the fourth thing is this. Look at I just want to say to you, walk in the light by making Jesus king. I know I already said make Jesus king, but that's the whole key to this text. You know, Jesus, his word says this, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just, and he will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's an amazing promise. That God said this, if you'll just come to me, if you will come to me and confess your sin, I will forgive you. Now, I find that 
incredible because when we read this story, we see the depth of human depravity, how far human beings can go to pursue their lustful fleshly desires and to hurt other people and to do genocides and all of these crazy stuff. And you read this story and look at, here's what it helps us do. It helps us understand why Jesus had to endure what he endured on the cross. Say, oh, Jesus went to the cross and God was, you know, God was pretty heavy handed and unjust and that wrath was brutal. Look at, sin is brutal. And sin deserves punishment. We read this story, we recognize evil needs to be punished. And I'll tell you what, Jesus bore your sin in his body on that tree. He gave himself in substitution in your place. And he made atonement. His blood was shed for your sin so that you might find forgiveness of sin and eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross. And a story like this just shows us why the wrath of God had to be poured out on sin. But I want to tell you this this morning. God loves you. That his heart beats for you. And that no matter the depth of your sin, your depravity, the things you've participated in, the people that you've hurt, if you will turn your life towards Jesus and say, Jesus, I've lived with no king. I, 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 I need you to come and bring your rule in my heart and my life. I invite you, Jesus, to be the king of my life, and I repent of my sin. I turn from that stuff, and I invite you to rule over my life. Jesus promised this. He will forgive you your sins, and he will give you the gift of eternal life. And I want to invite you to pray that right now, to pray that with me, to invite Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Would you just bow your heads with me? Maybe at home, wherever you are, sit in the car, sit in the parking lot, wherever it is, sitting on the ferry, bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I confess that I've sinned against you, that I've lived my life like there was no king but me. I've sinned against your law. I've sinned against your word. I've sinned against you. Jesus, I ask that you would forgive me of my sin. I repent. I turn from the life of ruling over myself. And I invite you, Jesus, to rule over me. To rule over my heart and life to bring order, to bring peace, to bring forgiveness. I pray, God, that your spirit would come into me and fill me, that I would learn to say no, to live self-controlled, to live for you and your kingdom. Lord, this morning, I thank you for the gift of eternal life. I thank you for forgiveness in Christ Jesus. Amen.